All right, well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday service. My name is Thomas. Awesome having new faces. Awesome having familiar faces. Again, looking forward to just breaking bread together after service, eating together. And also, members, please make sure to come back here at 1250. We're going to start our members meeting. I promise it won't be long, but also some significant things that we're going to be talking about. And again, for those of you who are unfamiliar with membership, our church, we will be explaining that when we start our membership classes. So even if you don't know what membership is, but you're just curious, please sign up. It's live on the link tree. And uh, we mentioned uh, last week that today we're actually going through a new sermon series, uh, and we're going to be talking and opening that up, uh, looking at, uh, it's called from the letter of James, chapter 1. And so if you have your Bibles or if you have your programs, we're reading from the CSB translation, James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1, and we're going to actually go all the way to verse 11, so not verse 12, but verse 11. And at our church, we believe that our God is alive and he speaks, and so can we all rise together as we read this passage together? So starting verse 1, writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad. Greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation. Let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flowers falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. This is the reading of God's word. Let me pray for us before we begin. Lord, as we're here, may your spirit just stir in our hearts. May it comfort those who need to be comforted. May it challenge those who need to be challenged. But no matter where we are at, may we sense your presence in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So next week, actually not next week, tomorrow, I am traveling to Oahu with my family. Very first time. It's awesome. Looking forward to it. If I don't respond to your messages, I probably see it. I'm just not replying because I'm just going to be relaxing and chilling. It's going to be great. Uh, people, they've been messaging me like, hey, these are different spots that you should visit. And every time someone sends me a different recommendation, I'm like, thank you. But I always double check it by going on Yelp, by going on Google, ChatGPT. I asked them about this, sp- this space as well. And the reason why because um, I always want to have an idea of what I'm getting myself into before I go there. I always want to make sure I'm not like wasting my time or if it doesn't really match my vibe, I want to make sure, hey, I kind of know before I choose to go there. And I feel like a lot of you are like that as well, where you want to know what you're getting yourself into before you devote your time uh, to being there. And um, if for the, next, the next few weeks, uh, actually 10 weeks at our church, we're going to be spending uh, every Sunday looking at this letter, the letter of James together. And what I want to do is I want to show you briefly what you're getting yourself into. What, what should you expect from this letter? Uh, a couple of questions. Number one is, who is James? Who is James? Uh, we talk about in our church at the beginning of the year, the, the Bible, it did not come drop out of heaven, and you just found this book. Uh, but the Bible, particularly this letter, it is written by a person. A person wrote this letter, and he is writing to a group of people. 
Verse 1 tells us it's James. He is a leader in the church of Jerusalem. And if you read the New Testament, there's a lot of people named James. In fact, Jesus, of his 12 disciples, two of them were named James. But this James, the one who's writing this letter, it's neither of those disciples. This James, he is most likely, what scholars believe, the brother of Jesus. The Gospels tells us that Jesus had siblings, brothers, and sisters. None of them believed that Jesus was the Messiah, and we wouldn't blame them, because would you believe that your brother was the Messiah? And yet here in verse 1, James tells us he is, James is servant of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls his brother Lord. Very fascinating, because at one point he believes. Why is James writing this letter? One thing that's really unique about the book, of the letter of James, is he is not writing to an individual. He is not writing to a particular church. But again, if you look at verse 1, he's writing to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. A very interesting term. The reason why he writes that is because this letter was written around AD 48, which is, that means that was about 15 years after Jesus died. So the Jesus movement at this time was very young. And all the people, a lot of them, they were scattered all over Palestine. And the problem was, back then, they did not have Bibles like we do telling us what it looks like to follow Jesus. They didn't have, in fact, anything written down about how to follow Jesus. No New Testament for them. So James, he writes this letter, and this letter, most people believe, is the first letter in the entire New Testament. If it went in chronological order in the New Testament, James would be there first. This is the first written work that Christians would receive, describing to them, oh, this is what a Christian is. And lastly then, What is this letter about? What is the purpose of this letter? If the letter of James was the first letter written to the early church, you would expect maybe, oh, this would be like a systematic theology thing. This would be filled with all this foundation of who Jesus is, the deity of Jesus, the Trinity, and so forth. James talks nothing like that. When we read the letter of James, when we go through it, it is the most practical book that you'll read in the entire New Testament. Because James's goal is not to teach new theology to us. His goal is to teach us how to live out the theology that we know. Because James, he wants us to know how we follow Jesus in everyday life. That's his main concern. Do you know how to follow Jesus every single day? And so what he does is he tackles throughout the letter of James different topics. And he talks about, this is how you used to believe this topic. But as a follower of Jesus, how should it be different? It almost reads like the book of Proverbs, where you just have these like individual sections almost. And James just talking about, hey, this is what Jesus' follower does in regards to money, in regards to your relationship, in regards to how you pursue uh, your, your, your walk with God. Like All that stuff is there. In other words, James, he talks about just the common issues that you and I face every single day. And that's why the very first topic that James brings up, he says, we got to talk about this. If you want to learn how to follow Jesus, you have to tackle this. It's because it's the most common and yet difficult issue that all of us face. And it's the topic of trials. Trials, this word, it appears three times in this section. And it refers to any type of hardship, any type of difficulty that you go through. And James goes, hey, let's talk about that first. Because he knows in the first century, his readers, they need help navigating through hardships. We don't know how to do it. And so he wants to help them. And I would argue, we need help too. We also need help. Back in 2020, do you know what the leading cause of death was for people our age? I'm not talking about like all around, but like for you and me, this demographic, ages like 25, 35, do you know what the leading cause of death was in 2020? 
COVID-19? Cancer? Drugs? None of those. Can you guess? Suicide. Suicide was the number one cause of death for people our age. Death by self-harm, in fact, is not just in 2020. It's been on the rise since the 1990s, and it's still rising. Depression is on the rise as well amongst all Western countries, particularly in America, across all age groups, especially adolescents. Our teenage kids, they are the most depressed generation. The NIDA says that there's an opioid overdose death crisis where the rise is just continuing on, where antidepressants and people overdosing on it, it's just skyrocketing. 2010, 21,000 people passed away from an overdose. 2017 was 47,000. 2020 was 68,000. 2021 was 80,000. It's just going. It's just increasing. In fact, one author says that modern Western nations, we experience 10 times the amount of mental health issues today than we did 50 years ago, and it's not just because we're diagnosing it. It's a reality people are just going through hard times. And it's so ironic because the modern West, you can argue, we experience the least amount of pain in human history. Now, isn't that interesting? Like, the, the mortality rate, it's, uh, like, the most children survive, 90% of children survive past age 10. Back in the day, they, like, one out of five kids would only survive. Our modern medicine, it relieves pain more than ever. When you go to the dentist, you don't feel it. That's awesome. They would have never experienced that before. Living conditions are higher than ever. And yet, what gives? Why is it that we are such a depressed, suicidal nation? And this is where psychologists, they tell us it's important to understand the difference between pain and suffering. Pain, you can describe like this. Pain is what happens. It's a loss of a job. It's a sickness that you experience. It's a tragic death that takes place in your family. That's pain. And you can't escape that. That's something that just happens. But suffering, suffering is our response to what happens. What do we make of that, last, that lost job? How do we live with this sickness? How do we experience that death in the family? You see, the problem is we experience the least amount of pain. We also experience the most amount of suffering because we do not know how to deal with our pain. As little as it might be compared to other generations, I'm not trying to trivialize the pain we're going through, but as, as a culture, the least amount of pain we suffer the most because we don't know how to deal with it. It's hard. It's tough. And this culture does not equip you. It does not tell you what to do. And that's why even though James, he's writing to readers in the first century, going through pain, we should pay attention today in the 21st century far more than his original readers. Because we live in a culture where man, it just, we're not ready. Like, we don't know how to go through tragedies in a good way. And James, he wants struggles, how we view pain. And so in this first part of the letter, we're going to look at three things James says. Number one, he wants to give us a new perspective on hardships. Secondly, he wants to know, let us know our response to hardships. And lastly, the potential of hardships. So a new perspective, our response, how should we respond? And what's the potential that could happen in hardships? First, a new perspective. Whenever I do premarital counseling, I always apologize the first session. I'm like, you know, you're so happy right now, and you're hoping this would be a great time with me. But, and it is a good time, but man, what I usually do is I don't bring up the good times of marriage. I don't tell you how wonderful it's going to be. If you do premarital with me, expect a lot of like dark conversations. Expect a lot of like, hey, these are things that are going to happen. 
And the reason why is because it doesn't matter how compatible you are, it doesn't matter what your Enneagrams say of how you match with another, it doesn't matter how in love you are with each other, you're going to go through hardships. Like I guarantee in marriage you're going to face problems and you got to get ready for it. And that's kind of how I see what premarital is. And James, he's kind of giving us the same warning. He talks about this in, in verse 2 where he tells us whenever you experience trials, meaning that, hey, no matter what, something's going to happen in your life. Life is going to be hard. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter how great your life is right now. You will experience hardship. It will happen. And if you didn't experience it yet, get ready for it. It will happen. And you need to be ready. You have to be prepared. Now, how? How do we get prepared? And James tells us at first, you need to have a certain perspective of it. And look what he says in verse 2. Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Fascinating. James says, whatever trials you're going through, and notice he doesn't say crazy trials or small trials. He says all various trials, all kind. It could be when you wake up with a kink in your neck. It could be when you have a falling out with a friend. It could be when your business fails. It could be, again, when you lose a loved one. James tells us that we are to lick at all this with great joy. Now, when you see this, you might, he might sound insensitive, but realize, James, he lives in the first century. And his readers at this time, they were going through poverty, persecution, deportation. And he tells them, yeah, all that, consider it a joy. Now, to caveat, he is not saying poverty is joyful. He's not saying persecution is joyful. But notice what he says, your experience of them is, is considered a joy. Whenever you experience these trials, that whole thing, consider it great joy. And this is hard for anyone to grasp, especially us today. Like I mentioned, we live in a time where we don't suffer much. Suffering is kind of shocking to us. We aren't familiar with it. So the idea of it being joyful is so foreign to us because you know how we interpret pain Hardships, trials, not joy, but what? Trauma. Trauma, right? Trauma is, Vox News describes trauma as the word of the decade. The hashtag trauma, you will have billions of tags. Not even, I looked it up, you have billions of tags on TikTok about trauma. Anytime you go through hardships, we go, man, that was traumatic. I was at Disneyland. And I waited two hours. That was traumatic. It's just like the go-to word for us. You know why? Because we don't know what to do with our pain. We don't know how to deal with it. And so what we do is we describe it as trauma. And just know the DSM describes trauma as something where it's a deep, emotional, painful thing you experience in your life that doesn't help you cope. We can't really cope today normally. But we describe everything as trauma. Because again, it's such an unfamiliar thing about what trauma is and, and how to deal with pain. And so whenever we experience pain and we don't know what to do with it, this is kind of like the formula that kind of plays in our brain. Here's the formula right here on the screen. Right there. Waiting for it to show up on the screen. Is it there? Pain? The word pain? Oh, okay. It's not there. Oh, there it is. Pain. <laughs> when you experience pain, what you think is going to happen is it leads to suffering. And when we don't know how to deal with our suffering... You have what? Trauma. You can't avoid pain. You don't have a response to it. You suffer. And that leads to trauma. And when you are experiencing trauma, you don't know what to do with that either. And so you know what most people, the solution is? You got to name your trauma. That's like main goal. Like name your trauma. Experience healing, meaning be restored. And the main goal is like to return to normality. You went through pain. You suffer your trauma. The goal is like, let's bring you back to net neutral. 
That's like the, the usual goal. Now, I say this all, by the way, I, I'm not downplaying trauma at all. Trauma is very real. Very real. And trauma leads to devastating consequences. But can it be that the result of pain, it does not only lead to trauma? Is it possible that the hope for whatever trauma you experience, it's not just to be healed or to return to normal? Can we potentially dream bigger than that? In the 1990s, there are these two psychologists that did a study on people who experienced trauma. Some people, they just don't recover. Some people, they return to normal. But there's an interesting, overwhelmingly large group of people where they didn't just stay broken. They didn't return to normal. They got better. They actually grew through their trauma. They got stronger. They got deeper. In fact, it became so prevalent that there's actually a term for it. They call it, it's on the screen, post-traumatic growth. Where this is the idea that when you go through trauma, some people actually grow because of the trauma in ways they could have never had grown. They actually listed, these are the ways they observed how people experienced trauma, how they actually grew. And here are five things that they put down. Number one, when you go through trauma, sometimes people who go through post-traumatic growth, they have a deeper, oh, it's on the screen, appreciation. Oh, that's that, next one. When you go through trauma, you have, number one, a deep appreciation of life. For some reason, these people, they just appreciate life a bit more. Second one is their relationships. They have a sense of like the relationships got better. People who went through post-traumatic growth, they had an idea of new possibilities in life. They kind of had like a closed mind, but now they're really open. Some people with post-traumatic growth, they have all of a sudden this personal strength and resilience. They have grit. And people with post-traumatic growth, they actually go through spiritual change. These are things that it wasn't be despite the trauma, but it was through the trauma that they grew. See, this is, this is something that we see in the, in that, that psychologists observed, and this is exactly what James is telling us. James is saying the reason why he wants us to consider rejoicing in our hardships is because God is doing something to you through the hardships that you are going through. And the things that he lists, it's very similar to what these psychologists say. What does James describe what's happening to you? He says something's happening to you spiritually when you go through whatever issue you're going through. Verse 3, look what he says. He says, because you know the testing of your faith. Testing is this metalworking where pretty much uh, back in the day, if you had a piece of gold and you found gold uh, in the, and it's all dirty, what you do is you put it into this burning pot and then what happens is it becomes pure. And James is saying when you are going through hardships, you are putting your faith in the fire. Do you know if you really love God? How do you know it's not because your parents told you to? How do you know it's not because you're just following the crowd, all your friends are loving God? How do you know you're going to church because you really want to be here? Go through hardships. How do you respond to hardships? If God drops out a picture, yeah, maybe it wasn't real. If you're still here, you're still there, despite the hardships, mm, that's what hardships are revealing to you. It does something to you spiritually. Not only spiritually, but hardships, it does something to you internally. Verse 3, look what it says. Because you know that the testing your faith, it produces endurance. The Greek word for endurance, hypomone, it means emotional resilience or inner strength that makes you stronger. Uh, there's a well-known fact that people know where if you get a, a butterfly and it's in the cocoon, the last thing you got to do is help that butterfly break out of its cocoon because it won't survive in, the, in, the nat- in nature because they need to break out themselves so that its wings grow strong so you're not supposed to help it because that's what makes it resilient through the effort of pushing through the cocoon. And hardships do the same thing. The hardships in your life, it develops strength in you so that you can survive in the world. 
And not only, so not only is it spiritually helpful or internally helpful, but hardships, it's also holistically helpful, meaning it's shaping you into something. Verse four, look what James says. So that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's so interesting. Lacking, you may be complete and lacking nothing through your trials. You know what that means is before your hardships, you are missing something. You are not the human being you were meant to be. Hardships, they form something in you that you either don't have or you don't have enough of. Humility, empathy, deepness. That's what hardships does. It forms these qualities that you otherwise could not have ever formed yourself. That's why David Brooks, he's an author from New York Times, he says it like this, quote, you might think a bright personality would come from an unburdened life, a life of pleasures and constant delights. But if you look closely at joyful people, you notice that very often the people who have the most incandescent souls have taken on the heaviest burdens. That's why the best leaders, you know who the best leaders are for your job? It's not people who live the privileged life. It's those who, what? Were burdened. Who went through hardships. The best marriage partners are not those who, they were given everything they had when they were a kid. But it's those who went through the grinder. Who went through hardships. Because hardships, it develops something in you that nothing else could cause to develop in you. That's what James is saying. And he says, when you look at that, that process, consider that, he's saying, and rejoice not in the pain, but in what the pain is leading to. You're being formed in a certain way. There's a Japanese word. Man, I'm going to butcher this, and I freak out because we have Japanese people in our church. Uh, there's a Japanese term, Kinsikurai? That's how you pronounce it? I'm so sorry, Saya, if you're out there. Apologies. But this word, it means golden red hair. And uh, it refers to this long-standing tradition in Japan where back in the 15th century, there was a Japanese shogun. Uh, he, brought an ex- he bought an expensive tea. Like it's a teapot. He brought it from China. And on its way back from China to Japan, it broke. And so what happened was, instead of just throwing this away because it was really expensive, they went to a, a Japanese craftsman, and they actually restored the pottery with gold. So this is how it was broken. And they restored it, and it became like this with gold. Next slide. Is it there? There you go. And when you see this, you're like, wow, that's like beautiful. And what made it beautiful is the design, the, the broken pieces. And collectors were so like, enamored with this new art that they just broke their expensive potteries and they started doing that. And in fact, it became such an intriguing thing that it actually became a philosophy of life for a lot of people in Japan where artists, they believe that when something suffers damage, it has the potential to become more beautiful. And this is what James is saying to us about how we view our hardships. It has the potential to make you more beautiful. God, through your hardships, he's uniquely growing you spiritually, internally, holistically. In other words, he's making you like Christ. And when you only look at the broken parts, you only look at the pieces, you just think suffering, trauma, and that's all you think. But when you consider God and what James is saying, what you see is actually this is maturity. This is wholeness. This is helping you lack in nothing. God is using your pain to make you into something beautiful. And I say this not lightheartedly because I know some of you, you're experiencing some difficult hardships. Some of you are experiencing trauma, lowercase t, right? Lowercase. Some of you, you're experiencing trauma like 
capitalized T, like you're going through some crazy stuff right now. And some of you, you're not really going through anything, but you notice people are going through stuff. And it's hard, like what do you do with that? And again, if you just view pain as pain and suffering, then yeah, you can't really do much. But what if God is doing something? What if through your struggle, God, he's actually doing something, and not later, where one day in the new heavens, new earth, like, no, 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 right now. At this present moment, right now, he's using whatever you're going through to form you in a unique, profound way that you could not have otherwise been formed. What if the pain you are going through, it's leading you to somehow an opportunity for a greater appreciation of life, deeper relationships, new possibilities, inner strength, Christ-likeness. And that's why back then, Christians in the early centuries, they suffered a lot, but they were known for that, not just because they suffered a lot, but because they were able to suffer with joy. That's what Christians were known for, because they saw God was doing something in the midst of their suffering. When author says it like this, quote, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence it has been through affliction and not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. This is what marks a Christian. We view our hardships in the way God views it. God's doing something. Now, I know it's easy to see this in kind of this type of light from the outside, but it's hard to kind of have that perspective when you're in the fire, when you're going through stuff. How do you experience hardships and find joy in it? How can you recognize what God is doing? That leads to the second point, our response to hardships. James says, you cannot see hardships as joy, You cannot recognize what God is doing unless you do two things. There are two things that have to happen because it won't happen naturally. You got to do two things to be able to see suffering and hardships the way James sees it. First one is this. You need to seek wisdom. Very fascinating. Uh, Some argue verses 5 to 8, it's a totally different section in James, but I would actually agree with scholars who say, no, no, James is still talking about hardships and trials. He's telling us, hey, if you want to find joy in hardships and trials, you got to do what he's saying in verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Very funny. James doesn't say, oh, if you're suffering, go through hardship, you need to learn about it. You should go, uh, you should just make sure that you, uh, you, you go drink, or you go hang out with your friends, or you worship. He doesn't do that. He goes, you should seek wisdom, which is a particular word. Wisdom, it's not just knowledge, but James, he's a Jewish man. He grew up understanding what the Torah and the Old Testament was saying. So his definition of wisdom is shaped by what we know as the wisdom books. Uh, the wisdom books, these are the books of the Old Testament, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Songs. Proverbs talks about how if you want to grow wise, you have to know that God, he made the world a certain way, certain rules, you know, you just have to kind of follow how God made the world. And Ecclesiastes comes in and goes, well, there's exception to the rules. There's hardships to the rules you have to pay attention to. And then Job comes in, he goes, well, when you go through suffering, everything changes. And then you have Song of Songs going, I'm in love. And you know, just all about like marriage and sex and so forth. And you have all these different voices talking because that's what wisdom is. To gain wisdom, it's not a clear answer. Wisdom is observing the world, recognizing where God is working, thinking about things, being intentional, asking questions, being curious, engaging in conversations. That's how you gain wisdom. And this is the problem. Because for a lot of us here, we do the opposite of wisdom when we experience hardships. What do we do? When you're going through a hard day, something really rough happens at work, what do you do? You watch Netflix. You zone out. I talk to people and ask them, hey, they're going through like some really hard times. So what do you do? And they're like, to be honest, I drink a lot. I'm like, well, thanks for sharing. Like, they, they, you go to alcohol. What are you doing? You're escaping 
by self-medicating. You don't want to think about it, even though it's still there, so you just try to not think about it. You're escaping. Or some of the people I know, they try to seek answers. Like, I know one person was going through a crisis, and so he went on, like, every Reddit thread. He looked at every single thing about what he was going through, and what he's trying to do is he's trying to figure out, like, what's happening to me so I could either handle it well or I could get rid of it. In other words, he's trying to control what he was going through. Or this is how most people, I think, what our church does. When you go through a hard time, uh, you'll go to people... And you want them to listen to you, and that's it. I meet with people sometimes, and I remember one person, this one person in our church like, asked me, hey, can we meet? And they're like, I'm going through a hard time. I'm like, yeah, sure. Now, like, what's going on? This is happening, this is happening. They told me the whole story. I was like, oh, man, that sounds rough. I'm like, yeah, it's really rough. Thank you so much for your time. I'm really glad we met. And I'm like, oh, you not, do you have any questions? Do you want me to answer? Like, no, 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 I'm good. I just appreciate you hearing me. I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, oh, like all they wanted was for me to hear their story and to affirm them and be like, that's hard. And, you know, by the way, that's, uh, people need that. When you're going through a hard time, that's probably what most people really need is you need comfort, you need affirmation. But I can tell you, if that's all you're looking for with your hardship, you might be comforted in it, but you're not going to grow up. You're not going to understand what God is doing. How could you? You're not curious what God is doing. That's how we typically respond to hardship, and that's why, man, when we look at our hardships, we're not really growing much. It's like a, just a dark time in our life. Because you're trying to survive, you're trying to just get through it, and you're not really seeing what God's trying to teach you. There's a spiritual director, I saw this clip where I thought it was really helpful, where he was saying that a lot of folks, when you experience hardships, the main thing you're thinking is, how do I get rid of it? When's this going to end? What do I got to do to minimize the long-term effects of this? And he was saying the worst thing God could ever do if you're going through hardships is to take you out of it right away. Because if he takes you out of it right away, you will be the exact same maturity level as you were before it. And that's not the purpose of hardships. Instead, don't ask God to take you out of your hardship. Ask God to carry you through it. Ask him to carry you through your hardships so you can learn and grow what God is trying to teach you through it. How do you do that? How do you receive wisdom from God in the midst of this? What is the place for God to carry you through? Let me tell you, it's not that complicated. There's no secret magic trick to this. Ron Aronizer, he's also a spiritual director, he was talking about how there was this young man who came to him, he's a seminarian, and he's like, should I be a pastor? Like, should I be a minister? And he wasn't really sure, and he had to make a decision. So he went to Rawheiser for, like, counsel, and he was saying that this young man, he would tell Rawheiser that, man, I know I, he's like, this person, like, He's seeking wisdom. He wants to know what to do, and he's reading and he's praying. But it's almost like he's hoping for like this gut feeling to come up, like, mm, like okay, I should do it or not. And Rawhiser was like, wait, like, yeah, you could receive wisdom that way, but you are neglecting one of the main ways you could receive wisdom from Christ, which is actually the body of Christ, the church community. Like that person didn't talk to anybody, even Rawhiser. He's never asking him what should I do. He's just venting what his problems were. Rawhiser he says it like this quote: When we seek guidance in terms of discernment decisions. We need to look not just to God in heaven, but also what is being pointed out to us by the body of Christ on earth, namely our families, our churches, and our communities. The most important things that God wants to say to us, they are not given in extraordinary mystical visions. The God of the incarnation speaks to us in the bread and butter of our lives, historical circumstances, our families, our neighbors, our churches. Some of you right now, you're going through hardships, and you could find wisdom in Christ through the body of Christ, but a lot of us, we're not really doing it. Uh, younger folks, you know what's the main common issue that I hear younger folks go through, especially when you're in college? 
what do I do with my life, my career? Like I'm a med major. I'm thinking about coding, but why I like coding? Why I like being a nurse? And my main thought is like, dude, we have so many coders and nurses in our church. Just go talk to them. Find out if you'll like it. But a lot of us, you know, we'd rather Google it or, you know, just try it out and spend money. And it's like, oh man, there's so much like wisdom here where we could tell you, don't do it, man. Don't do it. Or go do it. Like, you know, it, it could be, that's, that's, what, that's what it's there for. Young parents. A lot of people who are young parents, we have one young baby. Man, it's, I, dude, I get it. It's hard parenting a child. And so many people, when I say, man, it must be so hard. They're like, it is so hard. I can't imagine how you do it with three kids. I can't imagine the parents having more than one kid. My one thought is, you should go ask them. How do they do it? There's so many parents here who we've gone through the, the, the grind. We know how hard it is. We know how hard it is to follow Jesus, how to keep your marriage intact in the midst of having kids. We don't do it perfectly, but we've been through it. What if young parents, instead of only asking for tips on how to put down our kids, what if we ask, hey, can I get mentoring from you? Can you tell me how you navigate this? Because it's really hard. There's so much wisdom here. Or some of you, you are struggling in unique ways. You're struggling with depression. You're going through a broken marriage. You're experiencing, again, the, the loss of a loved one. And you'll be surprised how many people in this community, they've actually traveled the exact same road that you traveled. They also have experienced depression. They also have broken marriages. They also have lost a loved one. And I know it's not easy to find some, such folks. It's kind of awkward after service. But hey, man, are you depressed? Me too. Like, you're not going to do that, right? So how do you do that? How do you find people? You literally just share life with people, and you'll be surprised what you discover about them. I had people over last night. We're all hanging out, and it was awesome. These are people who I kind of knew at our church. And man, I just found out things about them that I would have never known, and I didn't invite them for this reason. Like one person, his family, they have members who work for the, the secret agent service for the White House. I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's crazy. I would have never known that. I know another person, they were, they work, they're like working at this like media art company. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. You made trailers for these movies. That's awesome. I had no idea about that. I know one person, they shared that they were really hurt by the church that they were wounded by the church. I'm like, I didn't know that. I know some people who I'm over, not this group, another group of people, they come from broken homes. I know some people, they come from where somebody has cancer in their family. I would have never known that. But now that I know that, man, I know who to point you to because I know other people who are going through that. Can you imagine just sharing life with people, getting that cup of coffee, and you just discover things? You're just sharing life. If a community that does that, that shares life in that way, you know what happens? You are a community that's no longer just avoiding your problems, no longer just escaping your problems. You're a community that is growing in wisdom because the body of Christ is just filling that with you. But that's for wisdom. Seek the body of Christ. But not only seek wisdom, but James tells us a second thing. You must do it without doubting. Verse 6 he tells us, let him ask in faith without doubting. Now, when we see that term, we go, uh oh, so I gotta believe. Like, I really better believe I have a single intellectual doubt about God, then God's not going to answer me. And I don't think that's what James is saying because of the rest of the verse that James talks about. Look what he says. In, uh, in verse uh, 16, he says, Let him ask in faith without doubting. And then he goes, For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. That's what the doubter is. Someone who doubts in James's mind is someone who is double-minded, someone who's divided in their loyalties, where they're not really standing their ground in one place. They're like the sea, just going back and forth. That's what a doubter is. There's a season in my life where I went through what a lot of you try, which is a no-carb diet. 
If you know what no carb diet is, it's pretty much where you avoid bread, you avoid pasta, you avoid anything with carbs with the hope of losing weight. I did it for a whole month. I didn't lose any weight. You know why? Because I love rice. Like rice, I have to eat that with everything. It's like a staple. So what I did was I was on this no carb diet, but I ate rice. And so lo and behold, I didn't lose any weight because I was double-minded. I didn't go all in. I should not expect to lose weight if that's my approach to a no-carb diet. James is saying the same thing. You want wisdom from God. You want God to help you understand what you're going through. You can't be double-minded. You have to be all in. Because God, he can give you that wisdom. But it's only if you are actually really desiring it. What does this look like? Well, let's, go, let's play off Rollheiser's application. One way you could do this is regularly be with the body of Christ. Regularly be with them. I know one person this past year, they had a really hard year. I was asking, oh, like, what was hard about it? It was hard. And I was like, oh, like, what helped? And they're like, they mentioned this helped, this helped. And they're like, oh, but did the church help? And they're like, not really. Like, I don't remember. Like, the church didn't do anything. I was like, oh, okay. Like, how about your community group? They're like, not really. Like, didn't really help. And later on, I found out, like, oh, because this person, they went to church, like, once a month. They went to community group whenever they had time. I'm like, oh, okay, so that was kind of their experience, and it didn't really help them. Versus there's another person I met where they went through even a harder year, and I asked them, what helped you? And they mentioned a bunch of things. They said, you know, church, surprisingly, really helped me, and I don't remember anything about why it helped me. Like, they didn't remember a single sermon. They just remember they heard a bunch of sermons. They said their community group was like the most life-giving thing for them, and they don't even know why. They don't remember a single moment what their community group did, but just kind of being there with them all the time. And I realized, like, oh, that's, that's what, I think that's what James means. It's really unlikely if you're going through burdens that that one Sunday at church you come to that you're going to hear a sermon that would change your life. That's really unlikely to happen. What's more likely to happen is day by, week by week, day by day, little by little, just over time, you're just kind of in the presence of God, kind of in the presence of people, and something happens. His presence just becomes more real. His healing just becomes all the more tangible. And that's kind of what James is telling us is you've got to keep at it. Keep at it and see what God does. And that's the exhortation for us, is seek wisdom and keep at it and see how God heals and grows us in our hardships. Again, we cannot choose the hardships we experience, but you can choose how to respond. You can escape. You can try to control. You could just get affirmation. But if you do that, you're not going to grow from it. It'll just be this kind of hard part of your life. Or you could choose, this might be a season where it's a unique opportunity to grow, to seek wisdom, to break out of my friend group and reach out to that person who I know could uniquely help me. My heart, for some reason, is really open right now because, man, I'm going through something I don't know what to do. And maybe this won't happen right away. But keep at it and see what the body of Christ does. See what Jesus does. And you know what the potential is? You know what could happen to you if you keep doing this? The last point the potential and hardships. James tells us, if you want to not just survive, but grow through your hardships, he gives us not a, de, not a description, but he gives us like almost a picture of what that type of person ends up like. Look at verses 9 to 10. He says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower in the field. There are two types of Christians James is describing. Somebody who is socially and economically rich, someone who is socially and economically poor. And this world, we view that as that rich person, he is awesome, that poor person sucks for them. But James, he actually tells us, you know, this rich person, this person, he is boasting 
in his humiliation. In the things he has lost, he boasts in that. And this poor person, he is boasting in his humble circumstances. It is totally counterintuitive to how the world thinks because the world thinks that you are valuable because of the circumstances in your life, because of what you have. But James tells us that as followers of Christ, what we know is what matters most is that you are valued and beloved by God because you are in Jesus. James tells us, and you've realized that very uniquely through hardships. Hardships has this weird, interesting way of breaking us free from what psychologists call attachments. Attachments are what we think we need in order to be happy in life. Other people call these emotional programs, the way you're emotionally programmed to be happy. Reformers and Calvinists, they call this idols, things that we think needs to be something that we have. And James says, if you, if, when you, if you think like your job, your health, your reputation, if you think that those things are the things that you actually need, you're in trouble because he goes on the rest of the verse, in verses 11, he says, all these things pass away like a flower in the field. But also, these are the things that you're going to realize they don't give you life the way God does because you were not created for your job. You were not created for that relationship. You are not created for status. And you're unaware of how attached you are to that until you realize that, man, this hardship, it's waking me up. During COVID, uh, I remember I was stressed a lot. Uh, stressed about like kids, stressed about finances. But one thing I was stressed a lot about was like church stuff. And it's like, you know, stuff that I'm like, you know, more than ever, like we couldn't communicate in person. So you have like you know, the graphics, man. Like the graphics have to be like on key. And so I remember there was one week, like we had like all these graphics. I'm like, man, we got to post this graphic. Oh, it has to look nice because, you know, this is all the church sees. And I was actually really stressed about that stuff. And I was really stressed figuring out, hey, are we going to be able to post these on time? We have a schedule. Until all of a sudden, my wife, she went through a, she had an experience with her heart um, where pretty much it was like a clog in her heart. It was almost like a heart attack. And I remember when she went through that, pretty much like her heart couldn't pump blood in a normal way. Her left arm was like feeling pain. And I just remember when she experienced that, I was like driving behind the ambulance, taking her to the ER. And I was driving there. And you know what? The last thing on my mind was the church traffic. I just did not care. Oh, it still mattered. We should still communicate to church, but it's like, whatever. It's all good. Because you realize that as important as those things are, they don't really, those aren't the main things. There are more important things in life, but it takes a moment like that where I realize, oh my gosh, like what was I doing? And that's why a lot of us, we suffer the way we do. You are far too attached to things that you shouldn't be. You're far too attached to things that are not giving you life. And sometimes it's hardships that's going to uniquely wake you up to that. So our hardships, it has the potential to free us from our attachments. But what do we do to look to Christ and attach to him? You can't look at your hardships. Who do we have to look to for that? You must look to Christ's hardships. Our love for Jesus will not grow if we just see suffering as a discipline. That will just help you not be attached to the world. But if you want to see it, not, if you want to grow in love with Jesus, suffering and hardships, it can't just be a discipline. You have to see that Jesus, what he did for you in his suffering. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jesus, he endured the cross, not because of the cross itself, but what does it say? Keep our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He endured suffering. Why? For the joy, not for the cross, for the joy. And you know who his joy is? It's you. It's me. It's us. It's all those who profess faith in Christ. And Hebrews tells us, consider that, what Jesus did for you in his suffering, and I hope you to endure your suffering and go to him. And so in closing, let me just give a final exhortation. Again, all of you, you're going through something, or you will be going through something, 
And what I want to do is for us to have potential joy in this, let's, uh, I'd want to exhort you at least two things. Number one, reflect. What is God trying to do in you through your trials right now? Not in heaven. I'm talking like right now. Like what is God potentially trying to do? What, where is God like calling you potentially to a new level of maturity? Is there a place in your life you're actually supposed to mature right now? Can you identify what God is trying to do in your soul as you're going through this? Like, what do you notice happening inside of you in your hardships? What attachments is God revealing in your heart? What do you find yourself going, wow, I didn't realize how important this was to me until now? Reflect. But also, secondly, practice. Practice by seeking wisdom in this season. Seek wisdom in prayer. Seek wisdom in Bible reading. But church, let me exhort us. Perhaps we need to seek wisdom in the body of Christ a bit more. If you're going through something, meet with someone. Engage with them. Ask questions. Be curious. What should I do? And you will be very surprised what people might say. And so as I invite the praise team up, can I actually invite us at this moment right now? Whatever burden you have, again, it could be lowercase t trauma or capitalized t trauma, whatever it might be. Or again, you might be just knowing somebody who's going through something. Have you considered looking that up to the Lord? What emotions come in as you think about it? Maybe it's a burden. Maybe it's sorrow. Maybe it's discomfort. Maybe it's anger. But definitely not joy. But how can God bring joy and make you consider this process that somehow, some way, God is doing something, revealing something, growing you in certain ways? We take a time and a moment to pause and asking directly God for wisdom in this way and see what God says. See how God speaks. See how it resonates. Let's lift up whatever burden you're feeling and then I'll close this all together in prayer. So let's take a moment to pause and to lift up our burdens to the Lord.